Hey, welcome to the spotlight. This is a special edition of The Move where we get to highlight some of the work we came across in the process of recording our current season. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as we did. Hey, Caesar. Hey, Ayushi. I am so excited. You know, we are getting to dig through some of the interviews we've had in the past with some great people mm-hmm. and uh, this opportunity to kind of highlight some of those. And, you know, today we're going to be able to highlight the work we did with uh, Garnett Cardigan. Uh, He's so great. Yeah, he really is. You know, I've just recently met him a couple of years ago. I guess it's not recent. Uh, <laughs> you uh, know, whatever you'd like. <laughs> in, the, in the scheme of things, it's recent, you know. Uh, but uh, he's become a dear, dear friend. But uh, it's not because he's a dear friend that we, you know, decided to sit down and talk with him, right? Mm-hmm. We sat down and talked with him because he's an incredible writer. He has a way with words. And just an incredible way with words. And, you know, he's... One of the things he does is he walks. Mm-hmm. He walks through cities and through spaces to understand them and then is able to bring that beautiful voice he has through writing to mm-hmm. actually let us see these places in a different way. I mean, he's writing an entire book about walking. Yeah. And it's something that we do every single day but take for granted. And we have him <laughs> breaking up his audio again to kind of go through it with us. Yeah, and I don't know if you remember when we, uh, when we had him into the studio we started out by just sitting down, taking a couple of deep breaths. We were all rushing yeah. and just like, let's ground ourselves. Yep. And he actually even shared a poem with us, which was so incredible. It was, I think, the first time we started off a recording with the poem. Um, and we'll share that poem with you all today. It was supposed to be better than the others, our 20th century. But it won't have time to prove it. Its years are numbered, its step unsteady, its spread short. I learned that too much has happened. That was not supposed to happen. What was to come about has not. Spring was to be on its way, and happiness among other things. Fear was to leave the mountains and valleys. The truth was supposed to finish before the lie. Certain misfortunes were never to happen again, such as war and hunger and so forth. These were to be respected, the defenselessness of the defenseless, trust and the like. Whoever wanted to enjoy the world faces an impossible task. Stupidity is not funny. Wisdom isn't jolly. Hope is no longer the same young girl, etc. Alas. God was at last to believe in man. Good and strong, but good and strong are still two different people. How to live? Someone asked me this in a letter. Someone I had wanted to ask that very thing. Again, and as always, and as seen above, there are no questions more urgent than the naive ones. Listening to that poem just made me feel like I need to take a deeper breath. Yeah, and one of the things for me in that poem that was just, I think, illuminating, particularly that last word mm. around, you know, that, the naivety, mm-hmm. naivete, is, you know, our work is all about this stuff of how do we bring out public voice, right? How do we create an opportunity for a broader civic space? and because we're fighting the system, mm-hmm. right? We're struggling over something that we think can be better. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always talking about the strength and the wisdom of the public. Mm. But it's interesting to realize and to also accept there's naivete mm-hmm. there that has to be embraced just as much. Right. I mean, the other part of the poem that stood out to me was the mention of the word dignity. Mm. Right? I mean, I think a big part of the work for me is about 
bringing dignity back to folks that have had it taken away. Yes. And I mean, I think in a lot of ways that is a naive question, <laughs> right? It's it's this sort of basic, it's like, how do you live was the question that the poet talks about. And I think another part of that is how do you let live? How do you let live with dignity? Yeah. I'm so glad that we had Garnett continue to talk with us after sharing that poem and tie it back to his incredible work on walking through this world and walking through in ways about living differently. Yeah, and with the questions and with the eyes mm -hmm. of naivety. We've been talking a lot in our first series and you know now moving forward about how you can conscientiously design with a certain value in mind, right? And if here the value we're looking at is encounter, um, especially encounter among those that like the poem and Wilbur's poem may not seem like you or are not rumored to be like you. If that's what we're going for, then it requires a very different kind of conscientious design more than just one that's true to a public space or accessible for all, right? Because I think some of the best encounters I've had completely random spontaneous encounters have been not in public spaces, have been maybe in other forms of space that is, yes, accessible, but accessible wasn't, that's the lowest sort of bar here. Yeah, I think for instance of, I'm a lover of plazas. Mm. I'm a lover of what they did with Times Square, for instance, mm. when they shut down these lanes, that I'm, I'm a lover of I think you're the first resident New Yorker who has liked Times Square. <laughs> Here's why I like Times Square. There, there's there's a lot not to like about Times Square. <laughs> but here's what's to like about Times Square. I'm Jamaican. Mm -hmm. You're very well to Jamaican coming to New York. It's unlikely to be walking around looking in, you know, those bright, shiny, inane advertisements in the middle of Times Square. You're wealthy Nigerian, you're wealthy Indian, you're wealthy Singaporean, you're wealthy Colombian, you're wealthy Vietnamese, you're wealthy French person. It's not coming to walk around mm. Times Square. They're all going to different pockets in New York, cordon off, many times in hotels which feel like vertical gated communities. Mm -hmm. Times Square invites an openness. It has a range of people and many of them work in class, middle class, poor, all bumping in with each other. And they're also bumping in each other in a certain delightful naivety. Mm. That mm. There's an innocence of the city. There's this curiosity about the city. Well, why does this look like this? And why is this called it? And where do I find this? And how is this? And 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 there are all these questions in which they're looking at the city and seeing the city afresh and a mixing and an intermingling that happens there. It's like fewer places in the entire city. Mm. Fewer places where you see as many countries but working class, middle class people all intermingling and bumping in with each other and you know having this shared experience. Even if sometimes you'll think like, 
why is that even interesting to them? This seems right. inane to me. <laughs> but it also, in that kind of experience that many times if you've chosen just to slow your pace and rhythm a bit and not to rush and grumble past them, it turns your mind back onto the city and to make you start asking important questions about the city, to make you start wondering, well, why is this like this? And to make you slow down and start seeing the city anew. And so I, time and again, love that tourist point of view because it's a, in a point of view of curiosity and it's a point of view mm. of this common curiosity. But there's something else that I like. And, and in the midst of all this talk about walking and common space and accessible, I like the possibilities of protest. Mm. I'm bothered by how more and more cities are designed to shut down protest, to make protests a lot more difficult. Yes. If you want to think about the way, the best way to have in a shared experience and a common experience and to experience the commons from different people, from different walks of life coming together, it's protest. There are mm. few things that have happened like that. And there's no act, no public act I know of that's as potent and as effective and as rich as walking. It made a difference that you're making a move in between in Montgomery and Selma and you're not doing it by motorcade. Right. And you're not doing it by critical mass, mm -hmm. you know, like on bicycle, but that there's walking. That there's something about the act of moving together step by step in rhythm, in solidarity, that itself reinforces the solidarity, that deepens the solidarity, that creates an even stronger solidarity. Talking to your neighbor, listening to your neighbor, and, and seeing this happen together. I saw it in New York after you know, this spate of shootings that had happened a few years ago. And Trayvon Martin, Michael mm -hmm. Brown, and Garner, and you kept hearing one after another after another, and people said there's really a serious problem with the relationship of police departments and police officers and black people in public space. And I stood observing you know, a lot of wealthy and middle class and poor New Yorkers marching together in these streets, and I saw people who were Korean, alongside people who were African-American, alongside people who were Jamaican, alongside people who were Argentinian, moving together. And in, as they're moving together in solitary start speaking to each other and recognizing they're coming from a variety of walks of life and with a various opinions, people who, if they work together, they couldn't stand each other. Right. But for that moment, you know, organized around that common goal, that they wanted to bring attention to the levels of injustice that were happening in public space and asking, why is it that police departments can't have a level of police in, that is commiserate with the offenses that they're encountering? Why is it that they're over-policing communities of color? And organized around that and for those goals, it was a beautiful thing to behold and to see the ways in which people were encountering and deepening their relationship with each other and treating like the commons. And so part of what I'm thinking when I said, well, how can places be designed? Mm -hmm. I sometimes make the mistake of having almost a lowest common denominator. Oh, we should mm. create a space that everybody could feel welcome. Mm. Times Square is already pluralistic. You were asking how to make these spaces more pluralistic. Right. And one of the answers I have is to already find places that are pluralistic mm. or that are hinging on pluralism mm -hmm. and to create public spaces, to create designs that, that would harness that. Mm -hmm. So 
Times Square, they removed mm -hmm. all these driving lanes mm -hmm. and they removed the automobile mm -hmm. and opened it up. That it was already a place in which there were working class and middle class people mm. from so many different cultures coming. Mm -hmm. There were tons of tourists along with tons of locals who were working there. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it became a place in which people were sitting. There were all these seats where people were sitting and interacting with each other and engaging with each other. There were places in which people of different politics were stare, standing and staring at screens. And I remember being part of an event once with the Van Allen Institute mm -hmm. that brought me and a few other people to interview and to speak with people, but they had to be from different political opinions. It was during the election period. Mm -hmm. And Republicans and Democrats were speaking to each other, people who were real sharp differences, but they already were gathered mm -hmm. in this place you know, with common sentiments, looking at Times Square and enjoying Times Square and having a shared experience of being people who wanted to see New York and discover New York afresh. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they began talking and expressing differences. And you had people mm -hmm. who were surprised by the other, by the ways in which they had common commitments in other areas, though they had sharp differences in their political opinion. And it was a delight and something very refreshing to see the ways in which they could at once grasp their common humanity without letting go of their different political commitments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they took what was already a pluralist space and opened it up to create in a deeper pluralism. The same thing happened in Madison Square. You had the park that was there, Madison Square Park. And why create a plaza right beside a park? A park was there, you already had a common space. But they discovered that there are a lot of people who wanted to be in the plaza. Mm -hmm. And there's something about being on a plaza mm -hmm. to have all of the traffic going by. There's mm -hmm. people who want to be in the center mm -hmm. of the movement and the energy rather than to be removed from it, which was partially what the park does. Right. And there's also a way in which a plaza sometimes invites more of an engagement because right. you often go to a park to escape, whereas a plaza, you go to a plaza to encounter. Mm -hmm. And so there are different ways to walk. You walk to escape, you walk to encounter, you walk to arrive, and a plaza tilts more towards encounter mm -hmm. than escape, mm -hmm. much more so than a park. Mm -hmm. And there is that plaza right beside Madison Square Park, which one would have thought would have been useless, right. but it gets used to no end and encounters. And I've gone there sometimes to sit and watch and to see just how much encounter happens. And it's, it's refreshing, it's a real delight to see. And sometimes, the pure fact of numerical pluralism, yeah, even though it's still a far thing from actual pluralism of engaging each other, does something of of being a person. And you see, especially with children, who's continually around difference, yeah, begins to shift your way of thinking of dealing with the world. Right. If you keep thinking of people as them, but you're in a scenario in which you're always surrounded by them. There is a possibility, not the guarantee, but a possibility that them could start inching closer to us. Mm -hmm. And so the biggest problem I have, it's, it's not so much knowledge. You know, the homogeneity is not really a failure. Mm -hmm. It's not really a shortage of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Time and again, these ways in which we've segregated ourselves. It's really a problem of imagination. Mm -hmm. I think of the Starbucks event, for example, mm -hmm. the ways in which what I sometimes call semi-public spaces mm -hmm. in in a coffee shop space or in a, the eyes of a grocery store, these different places where you sometimes see segregation and bias working its way out. 
the way, for example, in a grocery store, if you're black, time and again, somebody will assume that, oh, you have to work here. You couldn't possibly be a customer. And that same person might see you 12 hours later on the street and cross the street holding their, right. in a clutching their belongings, suggesting that you can only be someone who is there to assist or to accost. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing in outside between, of those right. two. What it really is, is less a shortage of knowledge and more a deep lack of imagination. And so we walk more than anything else to inscribe our imagination onto the world, but also have the world inscribe itself on our imagination and start shifting our imagination. And so to design things, which itself are a function of a very wide and expansive imagination, but one that also allows our imaginations to be worked on and to work. And if, if they're corrupted imaginations mm -hmm. that need to be scrubbed, that need to be expanded, to work in against it. Or if so there are fields that don't allow for imagination. Yes. Right? Because the thing you said about the temporality of it is so beautiful because I think a lot of planning assumes if you build a plaza, people will come. Right? It's kind of like the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. And what you're implying is the opposite, is to take the plaza to where people already are. Yes. By blocking off a street or creating even that flat iron, you know, Madison Square Park intersection. Or what they do sometimes, you know, these temporary spaces, you know, it's it's hot, it's summer now, but it's out and about right. in New York City. And they said, we're shutting down these streets so you right. can ride your bicycles and you can walk. Or you have a bunch Avenue of different market, stalls. Right? And yeah. they all of a sudden, right. Yeah. Exactly. And these things, sometimes there's a danger in suddenly thinking, oh, well, you know, people are not thinking enough about immigrants. We're going to shut down the streets and have a bunch of stalls from foods all over the world. And it's, oh, you know, you know send me your cooks, send me your dancers, send me your singers. The way suddenly, the immigrant becomes a source of labor right. and a source of leisure. But in spite of that danger, there is still also the possibility of encountering people from elsewhere, people who mm. are increasingly being demonized or thought that it's best that they be kept mm -hmm. out. And you're encountering them and recognizing your, your imagination is confronting mm -hmm. its blind spots or confronting mm -hmm. its corruptions and the possibility that you might have a more expensive imagination. And so, you know, what is the rhythm of the city? And what mm -hmm. are the ways in which you could have permanent or temporary things that draws on those rhythms and that undercuts rhythms that are not conducive to civic engagement and civic culture? So shut down a bunch of streets and then suddenly have everyone encountering each other and, and interacting. And sometimes you may not have a strongest sense of what it means to be someone from another neighborhood, but you may have a stronger sense of what it means to love and to feel that the city is a part mm -hmm. of you. And then fight for its thriving, fight for its survival, mm -hmm. fight for its mixing and its multitudinousness, which is so crucial to its health. But I actually think what is even more imperative is to design places so people don't feel unwelcome, which is a tougher thing. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that and one thing I'm thinking about is the way cities are more and more trying to make plazas and parks and different public spaces more deterrent to collective organizing, to collective gathering. You saw even the way rules started changing of how the Zakata Park, you know, started having hours after, mm -hmm. after Occupy. Um, Occupy Wall Street. And you see more and more laws being passed against collective walking and organizing. You saw, for example, quite a few politicians 
And if I remember correctly, I think they were all Republican politicians. I'm not trying to hammer down on one party versus another, but at least with these laws were concerned, you know, a lot of laws against protesting and against marching. Exactly. But at one point, I've forgotten a politician. This is a politician whose name I should remember because he deserves to be reminded and called <laughs> in public time and again, where he was trying to effectively pass a law that's equivalent of stand your ground with a car. That if a group of protesters were in front of you, oh, yeah, you could you know, you know, hit them and effectively argue that it was like standing ground, you felt under threat. And so your vehicle would be your way of protecting yourself. And so to go after those laws and to go after people who try to make public space and is in a design parks, plazas, squares, and the like, so that it's hard to organize, it's hard to protest, it's hard to get it together. So I think this also a really powerful thing to think about walking, that time and again, where civic participation is concerned, we should at least have a basic right to protest. And so we should make sure that our public spaces are spaces that are not excluding protest. Right. Mm -hmm. So Watertown and Cambridge, much as your experience have been very different from both of them, what should be important as while we're thinking how to make these spaces more pluralistic, is that very least, you know, how to ensure that these places, when it's time to protest, you know, allows pluralistic engagement and a, a movement for pluralistic. Right group so i know we've had the last question but i just went with one point to you which you can respond to in 30 seconds if you want to but it dawned on me as we were talking about walking and walking across different spaces and particularly homogeneous spaces that you know that are abutted each other that i wonder what the conversations are that go on in these kind of walks like the walk for hunger the walk for, do people stay do they stay in their groups do people mix and do the conversations flow from there? And I'm just being an interesting thing to kind of, mm -hmm. I think I want to walk in one of those moments and just listen to the conversations because mm. it might be very interesting to see what happens. It may be another form, if you thought about those as really spaces for civic connection, not just for fundraising. Yeah. There might even be some way you could prompt them yeah. to have something really interesting happen. And even within homogeneous group, there's that group called Girl Trek, yeah, which is, which is a group of black women from city to city to city, town yeah. to town, town state to state to state, who are all walking together, and it's a way of developing unity and yeah. community, and it's aimed with public health, but it also has big and broader aims. Mm, yeah, uh, it's, it's of real political import, but also of deep emotional resonance and various people walking and developing friendships and cementing and solidifying civic bonds. And out of these walks, these regular walks of black women walking, finding and discovering and developing new you know, public aims that deeply affect the community, but also has resonance well beyond it. Great, this is great. This is incredible. Thank, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. I hope you oh, enjoyed it. Oh, very, very much so. It makes me want to leave here and go walking, even though it's in the mid eighties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could go on, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I was, just, but I was just thinking about you know this whole thing about as, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting if we actually had more 
activities that were really about engagement issues, but walking while doing it and talking about it. And then I said, Oh, we're in New England, which means we'll only do it four months out of the year. Even if it's important, but even if walking is a diagnostic, what does it mean to walk around the city when it's like very cold? Yeah. Yeah. Who's sheltered, who's not? Yeah. Who's vulnerable, who's not? So walking becomes a way of looking at vulnerability. And so there, there are ways in which walking becomes a way to see the possibilities. Mm. But walking becomes a way to expose the limitations. And so there are different ways to walk and to different ways to see. So it's very much about scene, about encounter, about arrival. For example, Harlem, mm-hmm. that increasingly is finding its public life affected mm-hmm. by gentrification. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you worry about a coffee shop in the middle of the block, but the coffee shop is not the thing to worry about. Right. <laughs> people think as much. The thing to worry about more than anything else at least for me, where I see it affecting public life, are banks on the corners. Mm. That people sit on these properties on the corners and then they eventually lease them to banks. They access so much in terms of assets and in length of lease that a bank will sit on it and be there for the next decade or two. And you think of a place like 117th Street and Lenox. Yep, mm-hmm. Manhattanville Coffee. And through the corners, there's there's a bank. Hmm. Now, what happens, you look at Harlem and how much corner, the corner life is so crucial to the rhythm of that place. Now, the one place a group of black men don't want to be standing is outside a collection of ATM machines. <laughs> right. They're happy enough to stand on the corner in front of a coffee shop. That doesn't affect right. them as much. Right. But in a city that has problem with over-policing and for a group that is increasing the feels vulnerable because of the fear of others of them. The banks have a profound effect on street life. So in an instance, one of the things to do with planning and even granting things is to monitor more. How can we slow down? Because there's no stopping. How can we slow down or find ways to deal with the constant shifting that is happening because of the way the corners are being replaced? But second is to say, okay, we're good to have different things shutting on the streets or different things that will allow barbecues on the corner or different mm-hmm. things that will allow some kind of civic life on the corner to recognize that we're losing the corners and in losing the corners, we're losing a lot. How can we restore some life to the corner, even temporary, but just knowing that a group of black men are not going to be hanging out a group of ATM machines, mm-hmm. knowing how people will, in freedom, increasingly, white population moving to Harlem mm-hmm. will start saying, oh, I don't feel comfortable with the three guys standing outside the ATM machine. Mm-hmm. And these are ways in which walking will, will show that and in, in making designs, you know, sometimes permanent and temporary, or even in Harlem, one way I see the fight in Harlem, people keep saying, oh, gentrification, and it's a new wealthier group displacing an older wealthier group. And we always see it in terms of economics rather than in terms of the way public space is shaped. And the way I look at it in Harlem is it's a, challenge the stoop culture. Yeah. Here's a neighborhood that the stoop defines the neighborhood much more so than just about any other social arrangement. And you have more and more buildings being built with a stoop removed, mm-hmm. or a stoop is there, but a stoop isn't used. Mm-hmm. And it feels almost like a battling of cafe culture versus stoop culture with cafe culture. And I'm being reductionistic and oversimplifying it, but at okay. least in cafe culture, your back is turned to the public 
where it's stoop culture, you face the public and invite. And there's a different way of thinking of the private and the public. In stoop mm-hmm. culture, there's this scrubbing away of the line between private and public. Mm-hmm. The stoop, which was this Dutch invention, which is a way of giving you privacy away from public space that got transformed in Harlem and it became a way of inviting public space into private space and seeing public space as an extension of private private space. Mm-hmm. So it gave public space a certain warmth, mm-hmm. intimacy, conviviality. And then to suddenly have Harlem shift and in many ways you've seen stoop culture changing. How can you even design things? How can you design things that even has the echo of a stoop if the stoop isn't there? So it's no surprise the new design of the Studio Museum of Harlem actually has in the design built in that of a stoop. Okay, I could just go on forever <laughs> on this one because it's just making me think about how the intentionality of that, right? Because the intentionality of moving to a, to a cafe kind of society versus a stoop society. And a stoop society, as you're saying, those lines are, you know, they're blurred between you know, the private and the public. And then if you don't like what the public has to offer, the cafe society allows you to create a space where you don't have to confront it yeah. as you transform it. And it be- feels especially harsh because you're doing it in public. Yeah. You're <laughs> turning back in public and said, I am, I'm shutting up the public. And one of the big problems that we find more and more, in, especially in cities, is the privatization of public space. Exactly. Right. The way public space is made to feel like in the private, in a purview you know, of a small select group. And so people are made to feel unwelcome in public space. Thank you so much for being here, Garnett. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to our Spotlight series on the move. We are really excited to share in mid-July our season two coming up. We're a production of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT with support from MIT's Office of Open Learning. Our sound is produced by Dave Lashansky, our content by Julia Cubrera and Misael Galdamez. I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell. And you can find us online at themove.mit.edu. And on our Medium site at medium.com forward slash themovemit, as well as our Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Thank you.